through the core marketing class, every daytime MBA student at Fuqua knows Dr. Jordan Etkin and Dr. Keisha Cutright. But who are they outside the classroom? We sat down with them this week to learn more about these professors and what they're working on. First, they walked us through their journeys through industry and academia. Then, they shared their consumer behavior research, everything from goal setting to behavior tracking apps to personal control to spirituality. And finally, they answered student questions about trends in modern marketing. Thanks again to Jordan and Keisha, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to The Fuqua Show, for the stories, the lessons, and the passions of the Team Fuqua community at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. I'm Thomas Chang, and today we have two very special guests with us. We have our two core marketing professors, Dr. Jordan Etkin and Dr. Keisha Cutright. Welcome, Jordan and Keisha. Thank you. Thanks, Thomas. Glad to be here. So a brief intro, Jordan studies behavioral science goals, motivation, performance, and well-being. Keisha studies fundamental drivers of consumer behaviors, such as personal control, religion, and self-care, and the implications for brand building and consumer welfare. Together, they've been published in numerous academic journals and referenced in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, BBC, The Atlantic, Business Insider, Fast Company, and more. Let's go ahead and dive in. I'll ask maybe Jordan first. What got you interested in behavioral science and consumer behavior? So growing up, I went to a a science and technology magnet school where hard sciences were readily available, but social sciences weren't. And I found the one class I could take in social sciences, AP psychology, and just fell in love with the idea of studying humans and how people think, how people feel, how people behave. I got into my particular research focus and topics through, again, a passion for understanding health and well-being, thinking about all of the time that people spend and all the money that they spend pursuing uh, goals and objectives that they have in their lives, and how can we use those resources more effectively, engage in effective self-regulation uh, to promote well-being. And so Kendra Brown from the class of 2024 asks, why academia? So... When I was an undergrad, I was in a business program and expected to go into finance, like most people I knew at the time. This was 2007, which was a great year to consider finance, (laughs) followed by 2008, which was less of a good year. Even prior to that, though, I, I had a moment where I was considering multiple internship opportunities, all of which were finance, except for one that was in marketing. And the marketing option allowed me to do research, to learn how to analyze data, form customer profiles, think about differences among customers and how we would make recommendations to our clients about how to communicate with them and connect with them. And it brought me back all of my early interest in psychology and human behavior and gave me a way to think about that in a applied business context. So that was the, the beginning. And then after that, I decided why work at all? Um, And I went to graduate school to deepen those interests. And how about you, Keisha? How'd you end up in this space? 
If I'm being completely honest, I'll have to tell you, I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> so growing up, I remember through elementary school, I wanted to be a teacher. I thought I'd be a third grade teacher. That seemed very cool. And then once I got to high school, all of a sudden I started saying I was interested in psychology. So something must have triggered it, but I don't know what. And so I'd say I'm interested in psychology. I think it's cool to understand why people do the things that they do. And then I started an internship at PNG. And I remember telling my mentor, my manager, that I really wanted to go into psychology. And she said, Well, that's what I do in marketing, except I get paid more for it. And having grown up without a ton of money, I thought, Huh, that sounds interesting. I would like to make some money. <laughs> so maybe marketing is a path for me to do that didn't really know what that meant. But eventually I learned that obviously marketing is way more than that, but it really did allow me to think about the psychology of consumption. And so you worked at PNG for a little bit after school. I did. So right after undergrad, I worked in brand management at PNG and really got an opportunity to see what she meant by marketing being psychology, because a lot of what I did was try to understand why are consumers making the choices that they're making and how do we help them make the choices that will best fit their particular needs? And to Kendra's question from earlier, why then did you leave PNG and go back to academia? It seems to be a not so common path. Yeah, definitely not common. I think what I realized when I was at PNG was that what I enjoyed most was the consumer research. So when we were thinking about launching a new toilet paper, which happened to be Charmin Ultra Strong. At that time, we did a lot of research with consumers, lots of focus groups, lots of shop-alongs. We were having them kind of pick pictures out of magazines, and we were analyzing why they were picking certain pictures and really trying to get deep into why they were making the choices that they were making and how it related to the rest of their lives. And I just realized that that's the part of the job that I really loved. But I wanted to do that in contexts that weren't just about toilet paper. So I went back to my professors at Ohio State. So I went to the Ohio State University for undergrad. And so I went back to those folks and I said, what do you do? Can you tell me about research? I didn't know anyone who had ever been a professor. So several professors took me out to brunch or breakfast and just said, look, this is what it means to be a professor. This is what it means to do research. And if you're interested in this path, here's what you need to think about. And so I owe them a lot for kind of getting me into this field and just giving me an idea of what it means to do this work. Well, I'm glad that that happened because you two are working on some really interesting research questions and I want to hear about them, but I want to have you talk about them in a way that helps the listeners, again, mostly current students or prospective students, maybe some alumni think about takeaways for themselves and their lives. So Jordan, for you, I know you do a lot of work around how to set and stick to your goals. Throughout all the work that you've done, what are some of the things you've come away with? So I think that goals can be a powerful motivational tool. They can also work against us. So they can work for us and against us. And so it's important to understand the commitment you're making when you set goals and how to set appropriate goal levels for yourself. So for example, I try not to have very many goals personally because I perceive them as commitments and I can't put resources behind 
too many different things. And so I try to be very choosy with the goals that I set so that I will actually be able to mobilize time, effort, money, energy, brain power behind them to achieve the things I set out for, for set out to do. So I think being careful when we set goals, being thoughtful, not thinking about goals as wishes, but thinking about goals as commitments we're making to ourselves to achieve some outcome or change our behavior is a good perspective to have when we set those for ourselves. I liked what you said about having goals be commitments, because I think that there's so many things that people try to do all at once. And a lot of times they don't end up working out, probably because to your point, you're trying to do too much. I know you've done some work on things like tracking your screen time, counting your steps. Tell us a little bit more about what you found with that research. Yeah. So this has been a a new main focus of mine is thinking about the intersection between self-regulation and technologies. And I've been very interested as companies have come out with broad range of products, apps, services that are in reported to help consumers, individuals achieve desired outcomes in their lives, whether it's related to, to health and well-being or fitness or productivity, even sleep quality, emotions, social connection, dating. There's all these ways to track our behavior and try to use these tools to shape ourselves. And yet I think people overly attribute credit to these types of products for giving them motivation or doing the work for them when they really still have to do it themselves. And so I've been interested in both how people expect that using these tools will influence them, as well as the actual impacts on their behavior and well-being. Give us some of the takeaways. Is it that people shouldn't use these apps? Is it that they should use them with a little bit more intentionality? I definitely think the intentionality point is key. These apps and tools are not good or bad. They just are what they are. And so thinking intentionally about how we use them and what we're trying to accomplish through that usage is an important decision that humans with our own brains have to make. If you're tracking something like step count because you have a goal to lose weight or your doctor has suggested that you need to improve cholesterol or different sort of health metrics or outcomes, that could be a very effective way to do it. However, if you just enjoy walking or enjoy other types of physical activity or you enjoy spending time with friends, you enjoy exchanging letters with family, those types of behaviors that we do because we enjoy those experiences are things to be careful about tracking. Because once we enter this type of quantitative focus and performance mentality, it undermines some of that intrinsic value that we would have gotten from those activities otherwise. And I can definitely see that in my own personal life too. I want to ask you, Keisha, about personal control as well. That's a big area of your research. What have you learned about that sense of self-control and consumer behavior? So I think the first point is that it's something that we're all always striving for. It's the sense that you can make positive things happen and you can avoid negative things in your life. And so it's something that despite everything that's happening around us that we can't control, we're always looking for little ways and little reminders that ultimately we're in control of the outcomes in our lives. And so I find that we see this motivation for control show up in a variety of ways. So it affects the stores that we choose to shop in and how much we spend in those stores. So if my feelings of control are low, 
I'm particularly likely to want to go into environments that are very structured and it feels as if there's a place for everything and everything is in its place because that feels like I have a greater ability to be able to control my outcomes in those environments. It shows up visually. You know, I have some early work that just looks at the fact that when you have low feelings of control, you prefer actual visual boundaries around things in your environment. Because again, you want to feel as if things are in their place, things aren't chaotic, things aren't randomly happening and out of control in your environment. It also affects the types of brands that we like to associate with. So when your feelings of control are low, you're more likely to go for brands that argue that they'll help you through challenging times or they'll help you accomplish your goals. With what you just said, I think that reminds me as well of the work that you've done with self-improvement, especially around faith and spirituality. Can you share a bit more? Yes. So one of my interests is really thinking about how religion and in particular, how thinking about God affects people's choices. And one of the interesting things we found is that when people are thinking about God, they're actually less interested in self-improvement types of products. And we find that this is because when God is salient, God is associated with love and acceptance. And so people feel as if, well, I'm loved for who I am. I don't have to prioritize being or doing something different to receive that love. And so my priority isn't necessarily self-improvement at this time. So that's less of a priority when God is salient than when God is not salient. Going off of what you just said, Keisha, how can we balance the importance of marketing while curtailing consumerism and some of the things that you just mentioned in terms of brands trying to maybe make people feel like they're less than or that if only they use their products, they could achieve their goals or be a better person? I think the first thing for us to recognize as future marketers, current marketers, is that fundamentally the job of marketers is to understand the consumer's actual need and try to find a way to help them satisfy that need. It's not about creating needs or just having people buy products. I think it fundamentally starts with understanding deep inside what is it that consumers need. I'm going to shift a little bit to some of the questions from students because it relates to some of the themes and topics that have been brought up. Eric Lan in the class of 2025 wants to know about what trends in marketing or consumer behavior are you most excited about now? Obviously, generative AI is something that we are all wrapping our minds around and thinking about how it can be used as a tool for good and where we have to be wary or aware of some of the limitations that it poses. Thinking about this in practice and implications for how using or interacting with generative AI shapes search processes for information, for products, for companies, the importance of the training data and the calibration decisions that go into these models and just how we can integrate them into daily life in a meaningful and sustainable sort of way. And so I think I'm very curious to see how experimentation with search engines that are supplementing with generative AI, how that bears out, whether it gives people better recommendations. I'm also interested in the energy implications. Right now, these models are extremely expensive in terms of resource consumption to run and to calibrate financially, but also in terms of computing power. 
And to me that in some ways that goes, you know, is at odds with other broader consumer interests and sustainability and renewability and thinking about our impact on the environment. And so I'm curious to see these reconcile. How about you, Keisha? What are you excited about? You know, I'll, I'll piggyback on the the latter ends of what Jordan was mentioning there as it relates to social responsibility. I, I am excited to see that more companies are making social responsibility something that is focal in their activities, and they're trying to be more authentic and transparent about how their actions affect the world around them more holistically. And so I hope it's not a trend that is a short-term thing that's just responding to consumers' pressure to do that right now, but that it is something that's sustainable and, again, authentic and something that is really going to affect uh, everything that we see from companies moving forward. I'm glad you brought that up because there's a lot of talk right now about corporate brands' involvement in social, cultural, political issues. We had Bud Light earlier this year. We had Target. The list goes on and on. How do you think brands should think about engaging in these issues? I think the first thing to think about, which Jordan emphasizes in in the core, which you may remember, is that I think companies need to think first about what is their purpose? Who are they? What do they really want to stand for? Who are their customers? And I think making sure that their actions then are consistent with that purpose will allow companies to stay on the right path, to make sure that these brands are consistent with what consumers expect from them. And it's believable. It's something that customers believe is actually true to who you are and you're not out just kind of making random statements about things that no one really believes. We just we just see you as a brand that's out there talking about whatever the rest of the world is talking about. I think it, it really starts with trying to identify what is your purpose, what are you in business to do, and then making sure that your actions are consistent with that. I think it's important to remember that you don't always need to get credit for doing good things, right? This is true at the individual level, as well as for organizations and companies, so that when companies publicize doing good things for the sake of getting credit for it, that feels artificial to consumers and consumers are getting ever more practiced in identifying those sorts of opportunistic responses. And so thinking about, as Keisha said, who you are as a company, what are you in business to do? And if you believe in a cause as an organization or as an individual at an organization, how can you support it credibly, whether in the spotlight or not? So in in prior years, we've heard from the CMO at ESPN about how ESPN tries to engage with social issues, that they don't necessarily have a voice in themselves. So they try to use their platform to amplify voices that do have something to say authentically and credibly about the topic. And that always stuck with me as a really nice example of how companies can support these efforts without necessarily speaking on them publicly in a way that feels opportunistic. Well, one cause that's getting a lot more attention as well is diversity, equity, inclusion, which means a lot of different things in the marketing context. It's about how these companies are treating their own employees, but also representation engagement with different communities in terms of consumers. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on how companies can improve when it comes to their marketing specifically. Well, I think the first step is to make sure they have a diverse boardroom and they have folks uh, from diverse backgrounds who are making these decisions. I think too often 
you have a homogeneous group of, of people in the room at, with a variety of respects, right? Uh, it could be income level, right? And you're trying to talk to lower income populations. Well, that doesn't work if you can't relate to this group or you're not reaching out to consumers who can relate in a way that allows you to get deep insights. And so I think the first thing to do is to make sure that the, the group of folks that you're working with reflect diverse interests and that you know how to get to consumers with diverse interests so you can get good insights. I think the job of marketing has just become harder and harder. There's so much more content out there. There's so many new channels. Kanchan Nabwani from the class of 2024 wanted to ask about influencer marketing. I'm curious if either of you have thoughts on the state of influencers right now and, and what we might see in the future. Influencers are an interesting marketing tool. For many years, it felt like fun to talk about potentially or maybe interesting, but not an important part of a marketing communications toolkit. But I think now as marketers allocate budget, this is a, a, a meaningful and consequential category. It bridges the benefits of person-to-person -person communication, word of mouth in terms of familiarity, trust, thinking that this is for someone like me. And so I think that influencer marketing in some form or another is here to stay. I do think consumers have become and are continuing to become more savvy that influencers are not their friends and perhaps perceiving these channels as more like paid channels rather than earned channels. So they're detecting that influencers are paid by companies to use products or to represent certain products or ideas. Well, you both are professors. You teach a lot of MBA students. Anandi Rahman, class of 2024, asks about what are the most important skills that future marketers or really any MBA student needs to learn? Math matters. No, I'm kidding. No, not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> kidding, not kidding. I do think like all business roles, as we have more data and more tools to analyze data and more applications for data analysis, having strong quantitative sensibilities is important. You do not have to crunch the numbers yourself, but it is important to come out of an, a an MBA program broadly and in marketing in particular with comfort and understanding that you can use quantitative analysis as input into decision-making. And I'll go on the, the opposite end of that and say, you know, in addition to these math and hard skills being very important, the soft skills are also very important. And so- it's not just your ability to be able to crunch the numbers. It's your ability to go into a job, get outside of your cube, talk to other folks, collaborate with the people in your environment, go and talk to consumers to really derive the insights that are there in the market for you to be able to build on and to be able to, to generate great products from that. I think while we have so many quantitative metrics around us to leverage, we can't forget that just being out in the world and observing and, and talking to people will still be really important for us to be able to do. You need the poets and the quants. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jordan and Keisha, for your knowledge and wisdom today. Thanks so much for everything you do for the students here. Look forward to seeing some more of this research. And for first years, get ready for a great fall two class with, with the two of these rock stars. Thank you again. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks for having us.